Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. All right, would you join me up here? It's my children. I'm going to remember that you whoop whooped for her just next week. I'm just saying, you know. Um, At Mercy Commons, we believe that the diet of preaching comes through the elders and pastors of this community. Um, But we also recognize that there are others that are gifted to teach and preach. Um, Karen is one of those others. Last week, it was Jason. And um, she's here because we've recognized that gifting on her, um, not because she's my wife. I'm glad she is my wife, but it's not because she is my wife. Um, But I just want to pray for her and... uh, And then, yeah. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. Mm. I want to thank you that it has um, ultimate authority over our lives. And I want to pray this morning that we would intentionally recognize that. Mm. I want to pray that as we come to your word, we would come with open hearts. We would come with open minds. We'd be asking the question, Spirit, what are you saying to the church? Mm. Father, I pray for Karen. I pray um, that you would use this week of preparation to speak to us. I pray, Father God, that her faith and confidence will be in you, your spirit and your word, um, and not in herself. And Father, I pray that you would anoint her mind and her mouth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. It really is a delight and a privilege to be with you. Um, as, as you know, we've been going through this, uh, this book of Judges. Whose bright idea that was, we don't know, but it's, it's so good when you work through Scripture, you can't skip and choose and, you know, pick what you like and hurry through the other parts. Um, but yesterday when we had When Women Pray, they were just kind of praying for the morning, and they're like, so who is it tomorrow? And I was like, Jephthah, and they're like, who? We've never heard Jephthah preached on. Well, he's not the easiest one in the whole book, but here we go. We're going to be fine. He's an interesting and tragic figure. Um, And as you know, in Judges, there's this kind of cycle, and God's people are stuck in this cycle. You just see it going around and around and around. And it's called a cycle of apostasy. Apostasy is just a fancy word of saying denying your beliefs. So they keep denying. So they, they forget God and then they follow after other gods and then they suffer and then they repent and then God restores them and there's peace and then they forget again. And so this is the kind of thing that we're stuck in. And you, you're familiar with this, but this at this point, but you know, as of any important thing you've ever learned in your life, you learned it in a song, right? You try alphabetize something without singing. So we just did judges with our kids, so we've got a little video, a little song to help you remember the cycles of apostasy. Right. By the end of the book of this Judges, the Israelites have broken their covenant with God in every way imaginable. Some of the tribes of Israel were even killing each other. They were making idols. And some of the Levites, God's priests in Israel, were helping the other tribes worship the idols instead of God. The cycle of apostasy went down and down and down. The cycle of apostasy brings Israel to misery. It's not a pretty sight to see they go down and down again. They do what's right in their own eyes, and much too late they realize. And then to God apologize and come around again. 
Now they're good, and now they're bad. First they're happy, then they're sad. And now they need their heavenly dad to bail them out again. So do not do what Israel did. Be a bright and faithful kid. And you'll be happy that you did. You won't go down again. Well, that was just super awesome, Captain P. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right, you, when you lie in bed tonight and you sing down, 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 you'll, you'll thank me. <laughs> so so this, is, this is just the, it's a lighthearted way of just remembering actually what was a tragic thing that kept happening. Um, and the book of Judges is not just merely a morality play. It's not just where we see making good choices versus bad choices. It really is an account depicting God's constant faithfulness to his people, despite their repeated unfaithfulness to him. He sends deliverer after deliverer to rescue them, obviously pointing to Jesus. Jesus, our ultimate deliverer and rescuer. Jesus, the great judge who will come to rule over sin. One day Jesus will come to judge the living and dead and hand out crowns of righteousness to us. And so that's what we're looking forward to. We see God has been whispering through every account Help is coming, rescue is coming, deliverer is coming. And so the aim of this morning is going to be twofold. First of all, we're going to see what are we like and what is God like. Um, And we're very similar to the Israelites, much more than we'd like to admit. We really are a fickle and forgetful people. Um, And so I want us to spend some time this morning just pausing and recalling I want to be unapologetic in reminding and remembering who God is together. I'm going to ask two questions as we process this. What is God like, and how can we be better at remembering? And we're going to do this at a bit of a clip, because uh, I want us to worship off the back end. So let's start um, in our passage this morning. We're going to be reading from Judges 11, and we'll read the first 13 verses together. Um, Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah. Don't you just love that? Worthless fellows. And went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders in Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, be our leader, that we might fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? So it seems he kind of appealed to them for help when his brothers were driving them out, and they didn't help him. But now they need him, and they come to him. Um, And he says, come, come, fight, help us. You can be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders said to Gilead, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. 
Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and now the Jordan. Therefore, restore it peaceably. So this is his... um, Uh, this is his deal. You guys took my land. So Jephthah sends um, negotiators back to him. He sends messengers. And we see him. He's a very intelligent and skilled negotiator. And he says to him, okay, actually four things. First of all, the land belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. So your claim is illegitimate. Secondly, God gave us this land. Why should we give it to you? Third, the king of Moab didn't even contest it. And fourthly, you've been there 300 years. We've been there 300 years, so your claim has run out. So he's very skillful. But in verse 28, the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them for 20 cities and a great blow, and the Ammonites were subdued. Then Jephthah came home to Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child, and besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you upon your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go down to the mountains and weep for my virginity and I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jesper, the Gilead, four days in the year. Quite the story, right? <laughs> man, this book. But you just have to love scripture. I mean, Jeff is just such a rounded character. He has strengths and weaknesses, great victory and terrible successes. He leads the people into this clear victory, um, but yet he makes this horrible vow that costs him his daughter. The story goes on to tell he wasn't able to reconcile with a neighboring clan and ends up kind of killing his own kin, and uh, Israel just descends into civil discord. Um, So there's like highs and lows, and what do we learn about ourselves in this story? Chances are not many of us are going out to war today, but there's still things that we can learn. We're flawed, fickle, forgetful. We see it in Jephthah, we see it in ourselves. 
So that's what we learn about ourselves. What do we learn about God in this story? That's our big kind of question today. Who is God? What is God like? Um, and if ever I have to do anything that has to do with who is God and what are his attributes and his characteristics, uh, Tozer, Pink, and Packer. Those are the kind of people I go to, so you'll hear them kind of littered throughout as I've tried to curate some of their thinking um, on the nature of God. So firstly, God is good. God's goodness means the perfection of his nature. He's fully good, and he's good in himself. Everything that comes from God, everything that emanates from God is good. He's infinitely good, and he's perfectly good. And because God is who he is all of the time, he is always good. He is good without limit, without boundary, without flaw, without excess, without deficiency. God is good. Psalm 119 says it quite simply. You are good, and you do good. God is good, and all that God does is good. In Exodus, most of you know the account, Moses is leading the people of God. And he says, God, don't send us from here unless your presence goes with us. Um, and can you show us who you are? Reveal yourself to us. And God says to Moses, okay, um, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. And in uh, the next chapter, in verse 30, uh, chapter 34, this is what the Lord says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is what he declares of himself. He says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And then he declares these wonderful, deep, and profound truths of who he is. So all of these things kind of make up the goodness of who God is. God's goodness is in all of these things. And obviously, God's goodness is most obviously on display in his saving grace. When he came to save us, we see his goodness displayed. He came to break us out of these cycles of sin. And, uh, and we're just trapped in ourselves. The Israelites couldn't help themselves. We can't help ourselves. But the good news is we don't have to. We don't get to be the ones who break ourselves out of cycles. So what are some of the cycles and some of the sin we see playing out in Jephthah's life? Well, firstly, we see the sins of a father, and then we see sins as a father. So we're going to look at those two things. So sins of a father, we see this thing of rejection. The account opens with, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Immediately, we're introduced to what disqualifies him. The story goes on to say that he was rejected, he was driven out, he was despised by his brothers. And so far, he seems to be in good company in the book of Judges. God takes delight in using what the world rejects for his glory and for their good. We've seen Ehud, who was left-handed, Deborah, who was a woman, um, Gideon, who was the smallest in his family and the least in his clan, and now we see Jephthah, the son of a prostitute. God is not limited by the things that um, the world despises. He can use any and all of those things. But we see here that Jephthah is bearing the consequences of his father's action. Because his mother was a prostitute, he lives with the, this experience of rejection. 
And rejection is a deep, deep wound. Um, we've all experienced it to some degree or another, and sometimes we can just kind of read over the accounts of the stories that we hear without realizing, gosh, that really was a deep and profound wound that happened to him. He would have lived with this rejection, and then he's driven out. He's completely despised. Um, and the power of rejection is so much that psychology today said a couple of things about it. It said the rejection piggybacks on the same um, brain waves, the same pathways in our brain that pain does. So when they take an MRI, the same areas of your brain that are activated when you're in physical pain are activated in, when you're experiencing rejection. That's how strong it is. But when we relive or remember um, the rejection, it actually, we relive it much deeper than we recall moments of physical pain. So that's how strong a hold it is. It also destabilizes us. Rejection is a thing that just, it knocks us off our feet because we have this fundamental need to belong to a group. It's what we are as people. And when we're rejected from a group, when we're cast out, this disorientation actually adds to the emotional pain of the rejection. Um, it's such a strong emotion that in 2001, the Surgeon General of the US issued this report saying that rejection was a greater risk for adolescent violence than drugs, poverty, or gang membership. That's how strongly it impacts us, this, this thing of rejection. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> um, many of you know, but... Um, you know, I grew up in South Africa, and then my, my dad felt like there was something for them in America and that he was going to go into ministry. And so he sold a very successful engineering business in South Africa and moved to Oklahoma City. Why Oklahoma City? I'm not 100% sure, but that's where we went. So I did fifth and sixth grade in Oklahoma City. So, you know, that's just for free out there. Um, but, I mean, you can imagine, there's a fairly tumultuous move across a nation, and then as it turns out, the guy that he sold his business to was a con man who took them for everything that they had. So they lived off their savings for as long as they could, as long as they could, and then eventually had to go home, penniless, with nothing. Um, my brother stayed because he just started college, so it was a kind of a very fragile time um, as a family, and I went back to... Um, in South Africa is the last year of primary school. Um, and before I'd left, there was a little trio of friends. Um, there was Michelle, Cindy, and I, and we were the, the little trio. And, um, you know, now I have to come back and, and reinsert into this scenario. And my folks somehow managed to get enough money together to get me a school uniform and, and send me off to school. And my very first day back, <laughs> these two little girls come and say, um, just so you know, we've had a meeting and we've decided that you can no longer be part of the group. So, I mean, you know, it's like, there's no sting left in that anymore. There really isn't. God has been very, very gracious. But I'm like, even in thinking about that, I'm like, I remember almost nothing from seventh grade, almost nothing but I can remember where I was standing when that event took place because these moments are so formative and pivotal in our lives. And so this story can feel like 
what is going on here? This is so dismal. This is so bleak. Here's the son who's being despised and driven out because of his father's actions. But our hope, friends, is in a good father who gives us good gifts, who brings healing out of brokenness. He brings belonging out of abandonment. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken, despised, and rejected so that we could be accepted, treasured, and welcomed in. We are never going to be sent away. We're never going to be driven out. We are now a chosen people. We are drawn in, and we are accepted in the beloved. This is our hope. (laughs) So we see the sins of a father, but then again, it's like pictures within pictures, we see this other cycle that's also at play where it sins as a father. And here we see the repeated cycles. Um, So Jephthah paid the price for his father's sin, but his daughter paid the price for his. We're like, oh man, we see it again. Here it comes again. He made this rash and unnecessary vow, which cost greatly. Um, And another of the cycles we see at play here is that of kind of generational sin. So many of you have done the EHR, the emotionally healthy stuff. You've done work in this regard. This is not my jam. I don't like taking tests. I don't like plotting things on graphs. I don't like assessments. I like none of it. I want nothing to do with anything that is searching of my soul. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Jack. So this week, Erin had had a a bit of a rough go on on some things, and I was just kind of talking her through and processing with her, and she was recounting the story to Nick that night, at which point this sweet little girl says, "Um, I think mom is the most emotionally mature person I know. (laughs) Nick and I burst out laughing. (laughs) And I said, oh, baby, you need to meet some more people. (laughs) This is not something that is a strength for me, but I do understand its importance because it is a reality. Um, This thing of things just repeating within families is a reality. So Skazera has said it most succinctly, so rather than trying to re-explain it, I'll just give it to you as he said it. God has created us in such a way that we are shaped and formed in relationships. And the relationships that shape us the most profoundly are those in our family of origin. Because of sin and brokenness, some of the formation we received growing up was flawed or harmful. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. The consequences of actions and decisions taken in one generation affect those who follow. And again, we're like, oh my gosh, there's no way out of this. It's just, it's just bleak and horrible. But <clears throat> the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, we look to the cross. Even this morning in worship, we, look, we keep looking back to that cross, my friends. That is where our hope is. Because of what Jesus did, we are adopted into a new family. We've been born again. Don't you just love the phrasing of those kinds of things? We've been born again. Our lineage now comes from the second Adam, not the first. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. We are not doomed to repeat things that our families handed down to us anymore because of the person and work of Jesus. So how does the fact that God is good bring comfort and hope to me? Well, as we've said, Jesus paid the penalty so we can be free from the hold of sin and the damage of sin. 
we've been set free from this perpetual cycle of sin and self-effort. We've been richly accepted and wonderfully adopted. All of that comes to us because our God is good. Second point is our God is great. So God is good. We see that. We see that God is great. And this means he's all-powerful. He's in control. God is self-sufficient. He's in need of nothing. He sustains all, but he's independent of all. Packer says this. In theology, endless mistakes result from supposing that the conditions, bounds, and limits of our own finite existence apply to God. In our life of faith, we easily impoverish ourselves by embracing an idea that God is too limited and small. It is vital for spiritual health to believe that God is great. We need a bigger picture of who our God is. And Jephthah, we see he's a, he's a strong man, but he has a weak faith. And the story tells us that he's this mighty warrior. He's this leader of this band of worthless fellows. And this, is, this is what I, I, I can't help but seeing this. You'll recognize the picture here, right? <laughs> Rapunzel, anyone? It's the, the snuggly duckling when they open the, the door and there's this band of ruffians and hooligans. This is what's around him. You know, this, he's with a bunch of ruffians. Um, they were really a, a band of raiders. They were plundering in enemy territory. They were not you know, unscary. <laughs> they were, they were kind of, you know, you would have been afraid had you seen them coming for you. So they were strong and brave, but their faith was frail. Jephthah, no doubt, had some knowledge of God. We see it. God gave us this land. I will do this before God. God used him. There's no doubt that he has an understanding of God. But he's also living in a time where the people have forgotten who God is, so it's not being taught and celebrated and remembered. He's also living in the land of Tob, where they don't know God. And so it's no surprise to us that his faith is weak and it's warped. And while we don't see him explicitly worshiping idols, he doesn't set up ephods or pull back the, the Asherah poles, or, but we do see that he assumes that God is other than he really is. He's mixed up God with the pagan gods of his surroundings. And when we reduce or add to God, we really are in the territory of idolatry. Tozer says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Wow, we've all been there, right? We entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. So he has assigned to God the qualities of the pagan gods. He's also adopted this kind of pagan um, commercialism where, you know, even as Sean prayed this morning, we, they, they lived in a world where their gods were capricious and mean and moody and bad-tempered, and you kind of had to manipulate them and manage them and try to buy their favor with offerings, and we see that this is what prompts this rash and ungodly vow for him. He's forgotten that God needs nothing. God is great. God cannot be manipulated. God is not our equal with whom we can negotiate. His vow is rash, and it's because he's forgotten who God is. And we can look at characters in the Bible and think, oh, tsk, tsk, if only they were as good as I. 
But we so easily do the same, right? We can have a reduced view of God. We can have a view of God that is colored by our culture's perceptions. We can follow the trend in our culture to pick and choose. That's kind of the land in which we are living right now. 40% of people in America currently identify as religiously unaffiliated. It doesn't mean that they don't have a belief system. It just means that they are redefining and remixing a religion to suit them. Um, in her book, it's called Strange Rights, Burton says this. Today's remixed, that's what they call the, the pickers and the choosers. Today's remixed reject authority, institution, creed, and moral universalism. They value intuition, personal feelings, and experiences. They demand to write their own scripts. They do not want to receive doctrine to assent authentically to a creed. They want to choose the spiritual path that feels more authentic or more meaningful to them. They want the freedom to mix and match. And that's the culture in which we live. And we can so easily fall into the same trap that Jephthah was in, where we assign things to God that are not actually who he is, or we remove things from God that we are not our favorites. Um, Dallas Willard, you can't preach without quoting Keller or Willard, right? So he, he says, idolatry is an image of God that we make for our own manipulation. We're not making statues or golden calves, but we are creating images of God that we want to manipulate. We can follow our culture's trend to fashion a God of our own liking so that we can manipulate it and get it to do the things we want it to do. But inevitably, we end up driven, hurt, and disappointed because idols will do that to us again and again. So God is great. How does the fact that God is great bring us comfort and hope? Well, as Sean prayed this morning, we don't live in uncertainty. We're not at the whim of a moody deity. Instead, we are welcomed into the throne room of an unchanging, ever-gracious God to receive help. He needs nothing from us. He gives everything to us. We come to a God who, as Tozer says, is above all things presiding, beneath all things sustaining, outside of all things embracing, inside of all things filling. Ours is a great God. So how can we be better at remembering? I mean, you'd think you'd remember these things, right? <laughs> you'd think God is again and again and again showing up, rescuing, delivering, helping, being faithful. But we keep forgetting. Psalm 34 gives us some ideas. Verse 1 to 3, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Those are some ways that we can remember. It's, you know, you know I remember things if it alliterates. So my remembering to remember God comes with alliteration. <laughs> we mention, we meditate, and we magnify. There's just three little things that we can do. We have to deliberately um, go after these things. These are not what we drift to in and of ourselves. So mention them. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones is, I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, sorry, I'm having two thoughts come up <laughs> at the same time right now. <laughs> the scripture says, I will bless the Lord, his praise will be in my mouth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time speaking to ourselves. So we need to speak to ourselves, we speak to our souls, we speak to ourselves about who God is, we speak to each other, we speak to the next generation, we speak in testimony, we speak in song. We need to say it out loud. There's a power that comes from hearing the words that your mouth is saying. We need to remember, rehearse, and repeat. So we mention. Secondly, we meditate. And meditate, it's like, it's such a weird word, and so many people use it in different ways. And so what do we really mean by meditating? Well, it's really just gathering your thoughts and allowing them to fixate on God. There's thoughts going through our heads all the time, all the time. It's just kind of gathering them in and focusing them on God. It's actively calling to mind and dwelling. It's thinking about God in the presence of God as a way to commune with God. Again, Packer, talking about meditation, says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? Knowing about God doesn't do anything for us. We have to know God. And the rule for doing this is simple, but it's demanding. It's that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So that's what meditation is doing. Taking things that we're reading, things that we've learned, things that we've heard, and we sit with it before God, and so that it becomes, oh, I see you again, God. I see you, I remember and then we're praising this wonderful God. And then we magnify him. So when you magnify something, you either kind of, it's little, and you're making it bigger so that you can see it, or you're trying to see how big it really is. You're magnifying your view of something. So since we can't possibly make God any bigger, this is the second meaning at play here. We are trying to magnify our view of God and to consider and contemplate him for as big as he is. Our understanding of God is something that has to grow. We cannot face adult-sized problems with a child-sized understanding of God that we fashioned in, in Sunday school. Thank the Lord for the wonderful teachers, for the things that you do with your children in the week. Not necessary, vital, please keep doing them. But we cannot rest on what we learned as children because we live in a different world. We live in an adult-sized world, and we need an increased understanding of who our God is. Colossians 1 verse 10 says, So walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It is something we can increase in. We need to increase our knowledge of God, and we need to increase our view of God. Uh, band, you guys can come back up. Um, yeah, I think we're good. We're going to have some time to worship on the back end, and that's what I want us to do as we go into worship. I want us to mention, meditate, and magnify the Lord. Um, I'm just going to read this because it just was, it's so powerfully said. In 1855, in 1855, a 20-year-old preacher named Spurgeon said this, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. 
and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And that is as true today as it was 160 years ago. My friends, let's muse together in song. Just even this morning as we've been talking about God's faithfulness and His presence. I think one of the real challenges when we're in a community like this is the reality of what some people are facing. Um, just even standing and hearing Priscilla sing that God has been faithful to her, a widow been through some incredibly difficult, difficult times. Part of the joy of singing these words, even when they sound hollow to us, as we sing them on behalf of others. Um, and I just really feel this morning that God wants to zero in on that whole aspect of rejection. And specifically in two areas. One, where you, as, as Karen mentioned that story, you just got flooded with one of your stories where you could picture yourself, you could feel yourself in that moment of rejection and you need God to come and bring restoration in that. The reality of the fact that not only were you not rejected by God, but that He pursued you. And what we celebrate every Sunday as we gather is the meal that proves his pursuit of us. And so what I'd like to invite us to is to go to the table, the back on the side, there's wine at this front table here, and to grab the elements of communion, and then I would lead us out of that. Father, we come to you as your sons and daughters. We are your sons and daughters because you chose us to be that. We are not legal transactions. We are not little embarrassments uh, where you needed to fix things. We are children that have come home because of your broken body and your shed blood. And as we, as we take and eat, we remember that it was your body broken for our wholeness and for our healing. Let's take and eat.
Jesus is your precious blood that paid the penalty for our sin. It is your precious blood that ensures that we will not ever be rejected by the Father. As we respond in worship, as we meditate and magnify, I really want to pray for those two groups of people. The one group where you feel, man, I feel a sense of rejection here, whether it's seventh grade, whether it's seven days ago, whether it happened this week, where I'm just really struggling with that. And I need God to remind me of His kindness and of His goodness. The second group of people I'd love to pray for is those that feel somehow, even in the midst of everything that Karna shared, rejected by God. What I've done or the way in which my life is panning out does not seem to be a life that is, that is one that is proof that God is with me. There are going to be men and women on my left to your right that would love to pray with you and for you in those two areas. If you feel the sense of rejection by human beings, I need God to comfort you in that. Or if you're feeling a sense of like, but you don't know, I've, I've been rejected by God, or I feel I'm rejected by God, we would love to pray with you. Let's continue to meditate and magnify Him. Father, that is our declaration. Whether we feel it, whether we don't, even if our circumstances are not great, we know that You are great and that You are good. We know that if we, we are experiencing a fire, You are present in it. If we are in the water, You are present in it. And I pray for my friends. I pray, God, that they would know the full acceptance of their loving God in this week. I pray you would give us the strength to not shape you according to our experience and desires. And I pray more than anything that we would know your pursuit and your acceptance in ways that changes the way we interact with you and with the people around us. Bless us and lead us as we go out to be your church. Amen. Thank you, guys. We still have uh, the opportunity to receive prayer if you want to. Uh, for the rest of us, we're going to go out these doors to the left. and We're going to have some fellowship, coffee, and donuts. And we'd love to chat to you a little more. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.